Welcome to Church Birch and the good, the bad, and the ugly about church, religion, and spirituality with a dash of recovery thrown in. If you've ever had questions about the church, maybe a bit jaded in your attitude toward religion, well, you've come to the right place. Our host, he was an honors philosophy student, ordained a Presbyterian minister, planted three churches, taught at a prestigious university, but now, now he's just an aging curmudgeon who never quits asking the question why. The host of Church Hurts and Dr. John Bash. Laying in the woods was one of my favorite parts of childhood in suburban Pittsburgh. As those years passed, the Woods continue to provide discoveries and new paths, new creatures, and invited adventures created by developing adolescent minds. Tadpoles and insects soon came to be replaced by the thought of building our place of habitation, free from adult eyes, nasty weather, and a safe refuge from the watching world. Finding the right spot took many weeks of roaming through the trees, wanting to be close enough to civilization to provide easy access, but far enough to be hidden during the winter months when even the leaves were gone. Of course, we didn't want to dig too much. A, a level spot might be hard to find, so imagine going through the woods seeking that and, and considering the design and the materials. What resources do early teens have? As you might imagine, all that really made this happen, uh, facilitated it, was a sprawling suburban neighborhood. New construction was asking for little boys to come and steal a few sheets of plywood and two-by-fours. I undertook this project with my partner, Jim, whose father was an attorney. My dad was an insurance man. That's my way of suggesting that our trade skills were at best lacking, as was proven by the result. We had a shack, and we were proud of it. Over the years of life, um, I remain handyman challenged, constantly in need of friends with developed skills and knowledge. But I've also come to appreciate those who design in the mind structures which provide the walls that we live within. Boring designs make me yawn. Poor construction I find repulsive. Yet somehow there seems to be a connection between our view of life and the buildings we live in. Perhaps they even say something about God. Today, we have a guest who can make sense out of these meanderings. Welcome to Church Shirts and architect Ron Thomas. Well, John, it's a pleasure to be with you. I'm delighted and honored that you've asked me to join you today. Well, Ron, I was wondering uh, if you could start us out. Do you have a shack story? I mean, how did you become an architect? Well, yes, I do. And my shack story, uh, somewhat similar to yours, mine was a tree house. And uh, as a young elementary kid, uh, we had a cedar tree that was probably 60 feet, 70 feet tall. And I just had to have my tree house as high in that tree as possible. And uh, um, I might say that uh, uh, unlike your father uh, in his profession, Mine was a civil and structural engineer. So it was a little bit of genetics uh, was involved here because I had an early interest in building uh, and 
Um, when my father died very young, my mother was a widower of four young boys. And uh, let's just say that money was spread thin. And so I too was creative in where I found my materials and uh, might have long-term borrowed a few things uh, to build some of my structures. And so that was the beginning of my interest in, uh, in building things and designing things. And it was only nurtured later in life. You know, I bet, Ron, that I, I know your successes and, and I could ask you to start talking about awards and all of that. I'm not. You wouldn't be here if I didn't think you were an impressive architect. Um, but I bet most people don't know much about your hardships, even people that, you know, work with you, the hardships you had growing up. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that, kind of filling in the church stuff along the way? Sure. Um well, I don't want to make it all doom and gloom, but uh, yes, my father died at a, a very young age. I was five. He died in a small airplane uh, crash, leaving four young boys, a widowed uh, wife. And uh, um, and so we moved to what some might consider the poor part of town. Although when you're five years old, that means nothing. I thought it was a wonderful home. We could walk to elementary school. And then later in life, my mom did meet another widower, remarried, and um, uh, he was a good provider, maybe on the loving side, maybe a little lacking, but I always felt like he provided. I had the usual interest of a young man that varied from sports. Uh, Johnny Bench was a big deal. I was a catcher, and so that's what I wanted to be, a baseball player. Then that shifted when I was interested in music, the piano, then drums, and part of a youth singing group and a band. Because um, in the 60s, you know, music was a big deal. And uh, then uh, when I went off to high school, um, I had somebody say, uh, we actually had a lot of shop classes, wood shop, metal shop, and even drafting, which I tried at a, a young age. Said, hey, you're pretty good at this. And they actually found a local contractor that wanted somebody to draw things for him. And, and so here I was, I think a sophomore in high school, actually getting paid for doing drawing. And, I just let, let me interrupt you for a second, because I remember that drawing class. And, yes. and I remember what they had shot back then for me, too. And they looked at my stuff and they said, you're pretty bad at this. Oh, <laughs> well, yes, it's, it strikes me. A lot of people wanted to be an architect young in life. And uh, I'm one of those that continued on. And uh, for me, my whole youth was uh, wonderful youth. Uh, uh, I was supported in all the different things that I pursued, was part of a church youth group. But even going through college, graduate school, that sort of thing, I did come back to the community I grew up in to start practicing. And it wasn't until I met my wife on a blind date and, and months after um, that I became born again. And it's like it wasn't until that time that I really felt that I had a personal relationship with Christ. And from that point forward, uh, let's just say by the time we had our third child, that was the first planned child. So we had quite a few children young in our marriage and uh, uh, chose to move away. We happened to uh, grow up and get married in Olympia, Washington. That's up in the Pacific Northwest. 
Um, I had an architect that said, hey, you're a pretty good kid. You ought to get out of this small town, go to a big town. We Easy thing to do would be to go to Seattle. We chose to go to Boston. Clear oh, wow. Wait, town. wait. Before, I get, before you go to Boston, let's come back there. Yeah. But you mentioned born again. Isn't it funny how you really don't hear about that the way you used to? Oh. And and it used to be such a category yeah. where, you know, people it even became kind of a noun of born againers. You know, you're one of those born againers types. Um people would kind of, you know, Chuck Colson came out with a book Born Again, which so many people didn't read, and is an amazingly good book, by the way. Um, if if you've never read that book Born Again, it really is a it's a you know compelling tale. Colson's an amazing writer. But you said you became born again, had a personal relationship with Christ. Okay, those are keywords people hear. Flesh that out just a little bit. Was it really life changing to you? Yes, and, and I'll, I'll draw uh, a better picture. Is uh, for those of you who are blessed to have children or grandchildren, you raise them in an environment. In our case, we thought of raising them in a Christian home. That doesn't mean that that's a personal relationship, a personal choice. That they are, let's say, going to church, going to Sunday school, getting involved in youth group. They're doing it because that's the framework of the home that they're growing up in. We're all doing the best we can to raise our children, but it is a personal decision. And, and each person arrives at it at a different time in their life. Some very young, some in their teens, twenties, it just can be life circumstances that bring, bring you to that point. And sometimes you go down a very deep, dark path that might eventually bring you to that point where it's then a personal decision that you're making. So my point was, it was a personal decision that I wanted to live my life for Christ. Now, it doesn't mean it's all roses <laughs> after that decision. Well, let's go to Boston. Speaking of not roses, so go to Boston. <laughs> Boston was interesting. Um I grew up in a very sheltered environment in the Northwest. And when I went to Boston, all of a sudden, the idea of cultural, racial diversity, it, it was all around me. The thought that you could have an entire community, an entire town that was all of one immigrant race. And I, I'm being extreme here, but you would have an Irish portion of the town. You would have a Jewish uh, portion of the town. Uh, and and the idea of the mafia, well, that's in the movies. No, no, it's, it's not. <laughs> or how did we get that job? Oh, well, that's because my employer, he happens to be Jewish and that developer is Jewish. Oh, and by the way, so is the contractor. And so it, it, it is what it is, but it made me very aware uh, of what's going on out there. How are jobs done? Who are those contractors? And I got the opportunity. So the idea was to go to a big city, big projects. Well, uh, one of my early projects was a, a uh, not a war torn, but it was, it was a housing development that was developed after the Second World War, about 4,000 units called Columbia Point. Well, by the time I came along in the early 80s, it was only 200 families. And so it was a slum. Um, and instead of tearing it down, our client wanted to rebuild, but tear some of the buildings down, build new, and it happened to be on the waterfront. You would have no idea it was on the waterfront. So 
it was a big success story. So people who were subsidized housing lived right next door to somebody who was paying full rent and you had no idea. So you're mixing income levels, you're mixing races. Um, and so that became later the model for HUD's Hope 6 program that has been a program on for decades. That, that yeah, That's how you funnel federal money into redevelop housing projects. Well, that was great exposure to big projects. Nothing was too big. No planning was too grand. And 10 years later, uh, this is now three children that we had. I had a decision to make. Was I going to stay there for my entire career? Because the employer, the employer that I had 10 years prior, he wanted me to come back. Well, I had a decision, a very important one to make, because they were offering less money than I was making there. Other things that just made it very challenging. So I prayed that Lord make the decision evident to me, but I needed to be abundantly clear because this is an this is a decision that's going to impact my family for the rest of their lives. And he did in a very short order, multiple ways. And that was my prayer that he'd make it abundantly clear. We moved back. And sure enough, that faith was honored in the coming years because it was only two or three years later and my income was much higher. We were now living near where other family was. And by the way, I was now a principal in a firm that I was going to become the second generation of the second generation leader. And so big decisions. We're going to get into that in just a minute, but um, let me, I just want to take a break for our listeners. um, uh, I work with Standing Stone, this amazing organization, which helps clergy full-time Christian workers. Um, when they get discouraged and when they're hurting, we provide a confidential place for them to let down where they don't have to worry about people in the church hearing about it or people in the denomination knowing their secrets. We get to talk to them. And most of us, including myself, we've been down some pretty rough paths and um, know the roads and the struggles that they've been dealing with. We do that 100% because of your personal support. And uh, I would just ask if you've considered this before, we're coming to the end of this season, and I just want to say the support is really needed. As we come back from the pandemic, there's all kinds of new issues and new struggles. And if you'd be willing to become part of our support team, we'd really, really appreciate it. Just go to churchhurtsand.org. It'll take you right to the Standing Stone uh, page when you hit the Donate button. And it just would really, really deeply be appreciated and, and needed more than you know in this season. And why I say to that, why I say that, um, hit the subscribe button if you would. If uh, no matter which podcast format you're listening to this on, um, we're way behind on our YouTube uh, production. But if you are catching this on YouTube, hit subscribe as well and say something nice, even if you don't mean it. God'll forgive you, and that's a joke, by the way. Uh, I should mention, go back as well. As you look on your podcast app, there's a button that says "Look All Shows." Go to all the shows, and you can see the whole list of both season one and season two. And if you like the creative stuff, you might want to just check out Creatively Faith with uh, Hope Harrison that we did a month or so ago. So our title today, Ron, is stolen directly from your letterhead, Improving Lives by Design. So we kind of got you in the, you're doing big, big projects. Yes. 
But then you end up kind of doing really your own stuff and have come come to conclusion there is a connection between what you do and people's lives, improving lives by design. Talk to me. Very much so. And uh, to pick up on the previous story, when we came back to the Northwest and I was that second generation, well, only four years after that, um, rather than be the second generation of that firm, I had this burning desire to have my own firm. And me and one other gentleman, both Christians, wanted to base a new firm on Christian leadership principles. We merged, started our own firm. Later, only a few years later, another firm that we had a chance to work with asked us to merge the firms and asked the two young guys to become the leaders of the new firm. So now we're a firm of 30 people. Um, we have four main areas, um, housing, civic buildings. Think of it as office buildings, city halls, courthouses, education, and industrial. We thought, what are the things that tie those type of projects together? And it came back to lives. They all impact people's lives. Buildings actually have the opportunity to influence lives for the better or for the worse. And we can all think of buildings that we've been in. It's like, this is depressing or wow, this is uplifting. Almost it could have a spiritual experience inside of a building. And so the purpose statement of improving lives by design was born. And that's still the purpose statement of my firm today. And it has many nuanced layers. A person can, whether you're, let's say, living in a building, you're going to school, you're educating, you're recreating something, sports, uh, you're in that building and your life is better because of how that building was designed. But buildings are physical things in neighborhoods. It can be downtown, it could be in the suburbs, but they're influencing other buildings and neighborhoods surrounding them. So again, impacting lives, improving lives. Um, and then architects, we are kind of like a conductor in an orchestra, very much so. We are the leaders of very large teams. Even though sometimes we get the credit on the masthead, the architect is this, it's really many people in our office, but all the structural engineers, mechanical, electrical, the civil engineer, the landscape architect, the list goes on and on. Well, could we improve the lives of all of those people? We're talking hundreds of people that get involved in projects. And then the next nuance layer is, what about my staff? By how we conduct our business, can we actually influence them in a positive way? And then if you kept going down the layers, could I actually impact people's lives for Christ? I believe so. And, uh, and so wow. we've stuck with that. And it is something that drives me. Even in my later years, I just love it because I do think we impact people's lives. I, I re that, that's just, that's a lot of stuff right there. That is one, I mean, just wonderful. I love the thinking that's, um, when we talk about being Christians at work, it isn't just about, um, our, our ethics or, um, you know, being nice little people. I mean, it's actually viewing those kind of relationships. I want to ask you to pontificate a little bit more actually about architecture for a second. Sure. I don't know that much about it, but as I get older, I get a lot more interested in the buildings I see, particularly buildings that have been built in periods of time and why they were built that way and that way. Yeah. Talk to me about form and function. Talk to talk sure. to me about style. That is, 
Are you a modern guy? Are you, you know, what, what do you, where's your passion come in architecture? Well, we love up in God's corner of the world. That's the way we like to think of it in the Pacific Northwest where we have water, abundant water, a lot of green, a lot of mountains. We have the ocean. And so regionalism, that's a real thing. Does the building look like it comes from that area? I can explain buildings in the Southwest. You know, Adobe, they look like they come, are regionally appropriate. Um, the Northwest is relatively young in our nation. And so doing a building that looks like it comes, let's say from the early 2000s, that's okay. It probably should. And another thing that sustainable design in all of its forms is very real. Buildings take up a huge portion of our world's carbon footprint. And so architects actually have a leading role in reducing the carbon footprint that buildings and people have on our world going forward. So we're making a tangible difference right now. So those are all very far reaching, but I can bring it tighter in that our buildings that we do, we want them to be, uh, let's say contextually appropriate for where they're at. So sometimes I have a good urban setting. I have some good building forms that are around it and our building should respond to those. Other times there's a bunch of garbage surrounding in the building that we do. It needs to stand out, almost be iconic. And it really, what it's doing, it's setting a path for all that's to come after. Bringing hope. Bringing hope, setting the stage um, and Architects, by their very nature, are visionaries. We need to take that seriously and basically set our communities on a path towards improving. Build, communities are either living, growing, or they're dying. They do not stay the same. And so we want to make sure all of our architecture that our firm's involved with is making our communities better and better and setting a wonderful example of what should come after us. Ron, I met you. Uh, when you were involved in a leadership capacity at a little church um, yes. outside of Seattle, and you gave a gift, and um, I, I just thought it was one of the most creative things. I was running around the country helping churches raise money to build substantial buildings, and yours was a smaller project because it was a smaller church. But um, one of the issues that would often come up for me, people would say, "Well, you know, can we?" you know, should we name wings after people or pews after people? And, and of course I was, had a hard time not expressing my bias where <laughs> I loved uh, my mentor basically would say, we're not doing that here unless you want to pay for the whole thing and we'll put your name on the front. But, but you gave a gift I thought was so creative and I don't know that you even meant it to be that creative, but tell me what you did because it wow. had a big effect. Yes. Thank you for that memory. And uh, this, yes, this is where my profession crossed paths with my service at my church. And um, I was doing consulting on a redevelopment project at Tacoma's Old City Hall, over 100 years old, um, uh, literally Tacoma's original city hall. And the floor to floor heights of this building were about 20 feet. Back in the 70s, they inserted a mezzanine in these tall uh, floor to floor and it created another floor. So a lot of square footage was added. 
And it was actually a shopping mall, about a five level shopping mall. And the developer that I was working with, um, he said, I want to clear out one of those floors. I want people to see what the original 20 foot tall ceiling. So now we had all sorts of structure, a lot of heavy glue lamb beams, a lot of car decking. It's basically a very thick board that's laid down on these glue lamb beams, provides structure, but it's beautiful to look at and all the big steel connections. Well, I said, you know, rather than just demolishing that, taking it to the dump, will you allow this church, my church, to actually remove all this material and just take it away? Well, it was saving him money. To us, I think we filled three Connex boxes. We literally rolled those beams out, took them down, rolled them out, had a very large crane lift them out of the upper windows and basically onto a flatbed truck. And so though that gift of that wood continued to pay dividends for the next 15 to 20 years, still using it, still have some left over, and they literally were used in the design and construction of the new portions of that church. Yeah. Okay, describe it a little bit more because the average person's not going to understand what you were saying, but compare those things do a two by four. Oh, sure. <laughs> uh, so these things, uh, a glue lamb beam, glue laminated beam, it might be 30 inches high by eight inches wide and as much as 30 feet long. So you had to have mechanical equipment to move them. They're so heavy. And it took a very large crane to lift them out of the building and put them in the Connex box. And so um, and they cost literally thousands and thousands of dollars. So the gift might have been a few hundred thousand dollars, um, but it was trash to one person and, of course, valuable to another. And many capital campaigns, they it's all about monetary gifts. Well, in this case, it was one person's trash was incredibly valuable to us going forward. Well, yeah. and the other part that I just, the reason I say it was so creative is because it forced quality upon their project. Okay. I mean, I you, um, just, I, I think they use some as floors and, and, and I picture people buying wood floors these days and laugh. Cause I always think of those, you know, thing, cause nowadays it's like how many sandings you can get out of it. <laughs> and those, those, uh, that wood you provided, well, you could sand all your life and not get to the bottom of them. <laughs> You're right. It, it will last a hundred years. Uh, those materials will. Yes. Easy. So you've been a church leader. Yeah. Tell me what's been hard. There had to be times you're ready to quit. Well, they were. Um, the example that you just laid out that about that era, uh, we were doing a, a church redevelopment. Um, there was a change in leadership at the church and one where you, it's a blessing. The, the, the pastor had served for many years and we sent him out gladly. And then there was an interim and then another interim and, and the, a youth pastor, a new youth pastor, and uh, and unfortunately, he had some challenges uh, of maybe borrowing some things and reselling them, and they were things he borrowed were not his. And so, I won't elaborate any further. But in my position in the church, it was more of service, so helping with men's group, helping uh, as. Uh, just facilities, these kind of things. It was very servant oriented. Well, as people left, the pastor, the youth pastor, I found myself in a position 
to be exposed to the underbelly of a church. What do I mean? Well, pastors deal with this all the time. There are a lot of hurting people at any church, and they want somebody to listen to some of their hurts. That's what we're there for. Well, in my servant position, I wasn't used to doing this. And so before church, after church, I would be taken aside. Something would be shared that wasn't very pleasant or maybe had an issue with somebody else. And then people started coming over to my home. And I was like, okay, that's fine. Well, then again, and then on weekends. And the biggest impact was not on me. It was on my wife. It was on my children. No longer was church quite so fun because we were there for hours and hours at a time as dad was helping others. And I, it just, it was a heck of a challenge. And, and it did influence my wife's perception and my children's perception. They were all teenagers by this time. And so it was not for the better. <laughs> so uh, that was a challenge uh, during that time. Well, Ron, I just want to say here, and, and I got to close this. Um, we could talk forever, but I, I just want to say here, thank you for the service that you provided in a lot of ways and, and you live it, you know, you're just one of those guys and is the opposite of the stereotype of why people don't go to church. And, uh, at church hearts and we, we like to introduce people to the good side. And in my opinion, you're one of the good sides because you're willing to put up with some of the bad sides. Uh, so thank you, Ron. But before we close, I'd like to remind our listeners that churches are groups of Christ followers and church buildings are buildings. Some churches have buildings and some do not. If you want a direct analogy for the church, it would be a body. The church is called the body of Christ. So with that major qualification, I'm also reminded that the building analogy is used of the church as well. Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians 2. Now, therefore, he says, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. There are so many symbols in this analogy. We could get lost, but they're wonderful. Church hurts. No wonder we're a building in process. It can be noisy. It can be messy. Things get broken on job sites. Sometimes you want to give up. And then you look at the architect's plans and you say, nah, I want to be part of this beautiful thing. So let's add to this another of my favorite verses in the Bible. Psalm 118.22, the stone that the builders rejected will become the capstone, the keystone of the arch. Have you ever looked at a stone archway and pondered, how are those stones over my head staying up there without anything directly underneath them? Careful examination will show stone cut so exactly that if one of them was removed, the whole arch would fall down. In the very middle is one stone which takes all the horizontal pressure of the others at the very top of the arch. 
It is the keystone or the capstone. In all this building symbolism, we see Jesus as the cornerstone, the one who sets the direction for everything else to be built. We see Jesus as being the stone the builders rejected, reminding us of how many missed him in his time and how many continue to miss him today. But who's the keystone? Who's the one who takes all the pressure? Sometimes you might think that is you. And life is really tough if you think that way. Here's the good news. The stone the builders rejected, remember Jesus, he is also the capstone. He takes the pressure. He makes it all work. If you're being cut and hewn and pounded into shape these days, remember you're part of a beautiful building, but you aren't the capstone. Another takes the load, and that can be a big relief when life gets tough. For churchers and it's worth a thought, this is John Bash. Go and enjoy God today, won't you? Well, that was worth a thought for sure. And brings us to the end of this edition of Church Hurts and. Next week, it's rumored we'll be walking on the edge of controversy, stirring the pot of denial, and finding movement of the divine. Our host, Dr. John Bash, is the Shepherd with Standing Stone, a nonprofit ministry committed to caring for pastors and Christian leaders at risk of leaving the ministry prematurely. Come visit us at churchhurtsand.org. Tell us your story while you're there. Until then, remember, Church Hurts isn't the end of the story. Now go into the end. Enjoy God today, won't you?